Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, February 13th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. Elliot A. Cohen, former counselor and senior advisor to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, interviews author and historian Richard Aldiss about his book, Schlesinger, the Imperial Historian. And now, enjoy the podcast. Well, thank you. It's great to be uh, back at the New York Historical Society and great to uh, finally meet Richard Aldiss personally. We've talked many times, but we haven't actually uh, encountered one another in person, so this is terrific. And I'm uh, delighted that we're here for this great book, Schlesinger, the Imperial Historian, so that there's no suspense. You should know that I'm one of the people who blurbed it on the back, (laughs) so uh, no trick questions. Um, So let's begin talking about it. Now, this may sound a little bit odd, but uh, Schlesinger was a very familiar figure to people of a certain generation, like mine, uh, but perhaps less so to a, a younger generation. Could you just say a little bit about who Arthur Schlesinger Jr. was? Yeah, and maybe just if I could just take a moment to say how glad I am to be here at the New York Historical Society to thank Louise for that very generous uh, introduction. Arthur Schlesinger himself spoke at the New York Historical Mm. Society many times, and uh, towards the end of his life, his life was celebrated here. Uh, So I'm very glad to be part of that uh, part of that tradition, Um, and also to be in conversation with you, who, uh, like Arthur Schlesinger, spans that relationship between public intellectual and public service. Um, I mean, in answer to the the question, um, Arthur Schlesinger, I think you're right. Um, Perhaps now we, for a younger generation, may forget that he was um, arguably the greatest narrative historian that America has produced in the 20th century, Uh, wrote a very famous and influential book, one of the most influential books, The Age of Jackson, Um, but was also somebody who saw history as something more than just living in the ivory, ivy tower, ivory tower, that he wanted his history to be instrumental. He wanted to have an impact as an individual. Uh, and so sometimes he did that through words. For example, um, books like The Vital Center, which were very political. At other times, he did it through active politics for Adlai Stevenson, um, and then most famously for working in the White House with John F. Kennedy. But he's also a very controversial figure because by putting himself in uh, Theodore Roosevelt's words, into the arena, someone I know that you're very interested in, uh, Elliot, um, that uh, that brought controversy with it. And there was always a question whether the work that he did, uh, particularly A Thousand Days and a biography of Robert Kennedy, uh, whether whether he in some ways um, betrayed his position as an academic historian. And I'm sure that that's something that uh, we'll explore a bit later on. Yeah, well, uh, why don't we begin exploring it right now? Actually, first, maybe just if you could explain how you got interested in Schlesinger. And then the second question, why this title, Mm. The Imperial Historian? So 
in some ways, I've always been interested in Arthur Schlesinger. I can, he was one of the first historians, really, that I was aware of. As a, as a child, I can uh, still see the gold spine of the British uh, edition uh, on my father's bookshelf. Um, and it was one of the first books that I read. And like so many people, um, I, I was just swept away by... The power of the of the prose, the story. So which, which was the book? So this is a thousand days. A thousand days um, about Kennedy. Yeah. So you know the the way in which he writes this very compelling style that literally just sweeps you along as as you read. And so you know, in many ways, he was somebody who uh, I have, I was interested in and really got me into being a historian. Mm. Um, but much, of course, much more, uh, I suppose. Um, the other thing that I was really interested in and what really forced me to or got me to write the book was the thing that I mentioned before. I was fascinated by this character who was not only one of the most successful historians of his generation, uh, somebody who sold books um, to millions of people, um, but also this man who believed that you, as a historian, you had to be active. That it, so the tension, the relationship between the uh, historian and the public intellectual was really something that I wanted to explore. Imperial historian, he wrote a very famous book uh, called The Imperial Presidency. Um, he himself uh, wrote... Um, a number of books on those he deemed to be imperial presidents, uh, Jackson, uh, Roosevelt, uh, and Kennedy. And he worked in the White House for one of those he thought of and described as an imperial presidency at a time when, in inverted commas, the American empire was perhaps at, at, at one of its most powerful uh, positions. So it seemed to me uh, both a play on one of his own books, but also... Uh, to recognise that he was the, his, the historian of power at a time uh, of immense consequence. So let, let's consider the case for the prosecution, uh, which you do. And I, I think one of the things that I, uh, I very much appreciate about the book is it is a very fair book. I think you can, you can come away from it with very mixed views of uh, Schlesinger, uh, and that just indicates the care with which you researched it and wrote it. But I'm, I'd be curious to draw you out. And the reason is, you know, I also remember as a boy seeing those books. But, but then later on when I was um, a graduate student at Harvard, you know, the reputation of Schlesinger was not a particularly good one. And uh, now that was partly because Harvard itself had become alienated from Washington after having been infatuated with it, I would say, during the Roosevelt and uh, the Kennedy years. Uh, but there was also this sense that he had, this was a man of enormous talents who would have been a truly great historian, but he really sacrificed that on the altar of a, a relationship, first a relationship with the Kennedy family, but secondly, his own ideological beliefs, so that people were I think, more critical of his book about, uh, his, the books about Roosevelt, uh, than uh, than some of the other things that he wrote, is that fair? It's a question that he himself worried about. You know, am I just a stable mate of power? He said. You know, the, so it was something that he, he worried about whether he'd written enough serious history. I think one thing uh, is worth saying from the very beginning that if he had only written the Age of Jackson, he would still be one of the most important mm. uh, historians that America has ever produced. That book. 
opened such a rich seam of scholarship um, that lasted for several generations. And even today, where it's uh, clearly graduate students working on Jackson now, would part of what they would do would be to deride that. But, but that's part of the historical process. We all know that. But this is one of the most influential books ever written by an American historian. There's no question of that. Um, but, uh, and he did something similar with, with Roosevelt. His ideas about the New Deal, again, opened this very rich vein of scholarship. But you're absolutely right. The question becomes whether, in writing about Kennedy in the way that he does, uh, whether he, to some, to some degree, prostitutes his talent. Um, and the answer to that is that sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. That, mm. that A Thousand Days is, um, he says at the very beginning, is a memoir. You know, he recognizes that this is not a straightforward yeah. uh, history. Um, so he's very open about what he's doing. And if, uh, to use your phrase about the case for the prosecution, he's very open about the fact that he's making the case for the defense, which yeah. is really why Kennedy had him in the, fir- in the White House in the first place. But I think that, you know, there are, uh, when you look at something like the Robert Kennedy biography, for us now as historians looking back, it's more problematic. That, that, that there was more in the public domain by the time that that book came out that he was unable or unwilling to take account of. And so as a consequence, it's uh, a less, I think it's a, a less successful book than, say, A Thousand Days, which is written right in the, in the heat of the moment. So he, he was um, politically engaged, really, throughout most of his life, uh, first being close to Adlai Stevenson, which, um, you know, you describe how some of the people around Kennedy were put off a little bit by that. But even after Kennedy, first with RFK, and then even beyond, he is engaged in democratic politics. So I was very struck by something right on page three, <laughs> which I'll, I'll throw it out at you. And here, here's what you write. This is the uh, very end of the, the introduction to the book. He knew that to act was, quote, to give hostages to parties, to policies, to persons. But Schlesinger's life and work would put a simple idea to the test, whether, in his own words in 1963, quote, to smell the dust and sweat of battle is surely to stimulate and amplify the historical imagination. Well, I have my own thoughts about that based on my own experiences, but what do you think? Did, did, it, did it make him a better historian or, or not? Well, it certainly makes the book, specifically A Thousand Days, a unique book. Um, you know, it's something that he is, he is able to bring his experiences of being there in the room uh, to that book. And for us now as historians, when we go back and use that book, it's almost, we almost use it as, a, as source material as much as looking for a particular kind of interpretation. But in some ways, what he says there is something that he believed right back in 1937, 38, when he was a senior at Harvard, where he thinks about what kind of historian am I going to be? And he, he talks about this dilemma uh, which he has, where he says, you know, I'm committed to studying American civilization. This is the only thing that I'm equipped to do, but I don't want to be cut off from what he describes as the vital currents of life. So he wrestles with this all of the time, this notion that 
I want to be a historian, I want to be thinking about these issues, but I also want to instrumentalize that and be involved in politics. So sometimes in his books, the politics is in the background. You talked about the age of Roosevelt. Sometimes the history is in the background and the politics is in the forefront. But I think there's a a genuine sense for him that his entire career can be looked at as a whole, where really what he's trying to do is to write history, to think historically in this kind of, in its broader possible framework and context. So I I was going to ask you a different question, but let me kind of chase this one down a little bit further. Do you think young historians can possibly think that way today? I mean, isn't that, aren't those the sort of thoughts that somebody might have had, but in a very different era? And when you think of how uh, young historians today are trained and brought up and how they think, do you think there are any like that? I would... Personally, I would argue that it's actually not very different, that when Schlesinger was writing, even, as I say, going back to 1938 when he graduated, uh, to think in that way was unusual. You know, it, he, the, the example of his own father um, stands... Why don't you as, explain as, who, as a, who his a, father was? So his, his father uh, was also a Harvard professor, uh, a professor of history, someone that uh, Schlesinger himself deeply admired, even to the extent that uh, he was born Arthur Bancroft Schlesinger. Uh, but when he was in his mid-teens, he changed his name to Arthur Meyer Schlesinger Jr. Uh, such was his admiration for his father. Um, but his father was a very traditional, progressive historian, very successful, but operating really within the academy. Um, Schlesinger looked at that, uh, deeply admired it, but wanted to take it into the public sphere. And, you know, I would argue you work with some of them at, uh, at SAIS, that people, young historians yeah. like Hal Brands, for example, and yeah. Frank Gavin are are precisely the kind of historians who are thinking historically, but also framing it within, within a context. Yeah. They're, they're, they, they, well, thank you for the shout-out to my colleagues, who truly are wonderful. Uh, they're also something of refugees from the rest of the historical profession. Um, but as I say, even but, and, and, but, but and, Schlesinger himself was, and there's a, I, I quote it in the book, there's, there's wonderful correspondence that you could chase from uh, people like C. Van Woodward, another very distinguished uh, historian, uh, just expressing concern to Schlesinger, saying, you know, I hope you're not getting too political um, but then um, other historians, I think it's Richard Hofstadter, um, being, uh, talking to Woodward and saying, no, actually, you're being too political. Uh, and then someone else yeah. saying to Hofstadter, uh, no, 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 you're being too political. So there is a, there's a kind of a purity that perhaps if you lived in the 12th century and were a monk, that perhaps you passed that test, but... Um, probably none of the rest of us have. You know, it's probably one of the reasons why he and Kissinger actually always seem to have had a cordial relationship. I remember reading his, I guess they're his journals, sort of the last volume of his journals. And all the way through, he and Kissinger are in touch. Even during the Nixon administration, he loathed Nixon. Mm. And he ended up his next-door neighbor, I think. Yes, uh, which was uh, one of the... Uh, it, it was one of those things that you really couldn't make up that... 
Schlesinger having been uh, kind of a vociferous critic writing the imperial presidency during the Watergate scandal. Uh, And then Richard Nixon, finally, he finds an apartment in New York City, uh, kind of goes, and then his wall, his back garden, literally backs onto Arthur Schlesinger's back garden. And there's a whole uh, kind of uh, to do about that. It's it's Um, like... Yeah. Sartre, you have a feeling exactly. would have written the play. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, um, I think that, I mean, to, to, to get back to your other point, that, you know, there, there is this kind of sense that, you know, he was always thinking about history in this kind of very, in this very political context. And that sometimes did bring unpopularity with it. So I'm going to go to his, his political career in a bit, but I, I, let me go to the end of his career, because what's sto- one of the things that strikes me is, you know, in one way he was the, uh, he, he was a major liberal um, fig- intellectual figure in the 20th century, and yet at the end of his career, uh, in some respects he became quite unpopular, he certainly took some unpopular stands with what I think is one of his most interesting books, The Disuniting of America. Mm. Uh, so maybe if you could talk about at the tail end of his career, where where he ends up planting himself on the political spectrum and how he how he evolved from being a really sort of mainstream um, sort of center left figure to somebody who was being somewhat oppositional. And it's you know it's partly that times the times simply move on that the kind of progressive liberalism that uh, Arthur Schlesinger represented went out of fashion to some degree. Of course, that's you know to do with things like the Vietnam War that that. The whole notion of the best and the brightest um, and the kind of the generation that took uh, America into this war. Uh, He he was very, there was a new, uh, the new left were very critical uh, of him. And some of these things were deeply unpleasant and very personal that he he writes in his diaries about how uh, he would be accosted in the cinema and kind of people would say, you know, when the revolution comes, you're going to be kind of put up against a wall and shot and uh, kind of this kind of thing. Um, And then, as you say, he writes things which are, um, some people kind of argue he get, kind of gets very cranky at the end of his uh, at the end of his career. Um, ironically, a book like *The Disuniting of America*, uh, which kind of is very critical of multiculturalism um, and argues that America should kind of go back to the whole notion of out of you know out of many one. Um, uh, he, he actually gets taken up by the right and becomes yeah. very popular, not just in America, but, I mean, for example, John Howard, the conservative prime minister of, uh, of Australia, um, you know, has written very about how important this book was to him really? and, and so on. And that so, I was not aware of. Yeah, and, and you know, in a, in a way, I think that's the key to your other question about Henry Kissinger, that I think, you know, part of the reason why Schlesinger and Kissinger kind of actually have this respect is, number one, because Schlesinger in the 1950s helped launch um, Henry, uh, Henry Kissinger's uh, career and was very supportive. Um, and so Kissinger was very loyal to Schlesinger because of that. But also there's, a, there's almost a kind of a sense that this was a, the kind of era when the first Godfather film kind of came out and you know my favorite line from that film that you know it's uh, it, it's not it's not personal it's business yeah. that so they under, they understood that they could argue politically but they could still remain friends and that notion i think has disappeared out of american politics today 
um, that it's the, the demonization of um, the other side, the way in which the other side um, is no longer your opponent, they're your enemy. Uh, I think that that's another reason why kind of Schlesinger, to some degree, became a fish out of water towards the end of his life. Yeah, I think, true that, I mean, I... You know, I was thinking about that relationship actually partly through those uh, through the journals. I suspect part of it too may be that they both hung themselves out there on big public issues and took stands and knew what it was like to take a torrent of fire as a result. And uh, you know, if you talk to Kissinger about his view about most academics, it's not particularly complimentary. And and Schlesinger, in many ways, turns his back on the academy. Mm. I think, wouldn't you say? I mean, to some degree. Um, one of the things that is often for, um, forgotten about him is that he actually spent many happy years at uh, City University of New York. Um, actually spent longer teaching there than he did hmm. at Harvard post, um, post the White House. So he, he was in the Graduate Center. He had his graduate seminar there, which he really enjoyed and you know, was very effective there. So you know, I think that... Uh, it, it's because of the there was a kind of a falling out with Harvard, um, and you know to some degree uh, a certain amount of bitterness, I think. But you know these these things happen in kind of right. academic and, uh, life. Uh, so yeah, a lot of people who go there have complicated relationships exactly. with the place. Um, let's talk about him in government. Uh, there's this famous anecdote where I think Dean Rusk, is, who was the Secretary of State, was being interviewed. You know, why, why was he always silent in meetings? Why? Because I knew that Arthur Schlesinger was there and he was going to take notes and everything and turn it into a book. Um, and so he, he didn't engage. How, how important... What, I mean, his government service was clearly important to him. Mm. How important was he, do you think, to the Kennedy administration? So I think it's, it's important not to overstate his role in the White House. What, what um, exactly was his so role? So he's a, he's, he's a special assistant to the president, really without portfolio, um, which uh, some of his friends, like Galbraith, for example, the, the economist uh, J.K. Galbraith, says was a problem, that if he'd had a departmental yeah. kind of role, you know about this, that if you, if you have a departmental role, the president has to see you. Um, if you are a special assistant, the president might choose to see you. And those are two very different things. Um, but um, he shows himself to be um, kind of quite perspicacious. Um, for example, he's one of the few people who argues and argues for a long time um, during the lead up to the Bay of Pigs right. that it was a, the wrong thing to do. And he keeps arguing. But the lesson that he learns from that is that it's not enough to be right. You have to be right and heard. So that by the time we get to the Berlin Wall crisis, um, when actually he works very closely with Henry Kissinger, who at that stage is an advisor to the Kennedy administration, something that often gets forgotten. Um, But they work very closely on that. And in that crisis, learning the lessons from the Bay of Pigs, he is both influent, he's influential because he is, he is heard and Kennedy takes his advice. So he does learn lessons. But then on the other hand, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
Um, he sent he sent off to New York to the United Nations. His role becomes to look after the UN uh, ambassador uh, Adlai Stevenson because of their close relationship, um, and to the extent that Stevenson delivers a. A kind of famous hammer blow in his um, exchange with the uh, the Russian ambassador to the uh, to the UN. Uh, he does his job, but he's he's not part of the XCOM. He's not at the kind of the heart of policy making. And, and yeah. the sense I get is that the longer the administration went on, the more mar- not marginal, but the more to the outskirts he gets pushed. Is that right? Do you think? I, I think that's probably true. Um, he still he writes a, he's still writing a number of influential speeches. Um, for example, he works with uh, Ted Sorensen, Kennedy's principal speechwriter, on the Yale um, graduation speech, which is. Kind of very good, and actually, his best speech uh, is delivered at the Robert Frost uh, Library, um, which is a wonderful speech about politics and the arts. But you're right; he's becoming a peripheral figure by 1963. Um, he's not really involved in policy making uh, in the same way, and he he worries about his position. One of the reasons for that is, and he recognizes this himself. Is there's a he worries about his seriousness? Is he really a serious figure? So there's a famous instance where he goes to a party at, uh, the, at the Robert Kennedy's, and he ends up getting pushed into the swimming pool. Ethel Kennedy gets dragged into the pool as well. It makes its way into the papers. Um, he offers to resign. Uh, Kennedy laughs, but it kind of contributes to this this sense of him not being serious. He's also writing film reviews while he's in while he's in the White House. And he the one occasion where he really annoys Kennedy um, is when he says, you know, I really think that the White House tennis courts need to be kind of resurfaced. And Kennedy says, oh, no, you know, they're fine. Um, he says, and then he goes back to him again. And eventually Kennedy silences him by saying, saying, Arthur, I went out to have a look myself this morning and they're fine. And so then, and it dawns on Schlesinger, I've just made the leader of the free world take a trip to the tennis courts to make sure that they're in good condition. Maybe I should be doing, I should be doing other things with my time. He certainly should be doing other things with his time. Yeah, that does sound like a rookie mistake, I have to say. Mm. That, uh, ouch, that would, that would have been uh, hard. Did- and it, and, it, and it is a, it's, it's an interesting point, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but, you know, uh, for example, it's a point that someone like Neil Ferguson would make, and it comes back to your question before, that it's even harder now for someone with no government service to make that transition right into, uh, for example, working in the working yes. in or around the Oval Office, that, you know, such is the complexity. So, you know, I think that, as you say, it was a rookie mistake because he was a rookie. He'd yeah. never actually served in that kind of a way. He was in um, OSS, the equivalent of the CIA, during, during the Second World War, but he wasn't involved in policymaking at this kind of level. So, yeah, he was a rookie. Well, you're a close observer of uh, the American system of government, of American foreign policy. It, do you think that, that, that there was something distinctive about the second half of the 20th century when it was possible for the Arthur Schlesingers and the Henry Kissingers and the Zbigniew Brzezinski's to parachute from the academic world into you know, fairly influential positions in the White House? 
Or is that just something that's innate to the American system and it happened before, it can happen again? I mean, I think that it does seem to be a kind of un- a unique moment, as you say, this kind of moving kind of, um, kind of back and forth. Of course, it's something that still kind of goes on today. You're a, you're a good example of it. Um, Condoleezza Rice would be a, another, another recent example who uh, you, was, was your colleague. Um, and it, it seems to me that to some degree it's endemic within the American system. The system that I grew up in, the British system, has a permanent civil service. Right. Uh, and so there's a kind of a continuity of expertise that makes it more difficult for kind of outsiders to kind of come in. But obviously within the American system, uh, if, a, if a president is elected from a different party, you know, most people are out. There's a, a whole new group of people come in. And so you very often will draw on the, un- on the university experience. And I guess there's a, a sense in which somebody like you who has government service, kind of political experience, goes back to somewhere like SICE after your government experience. There are younger colleagues there. They are able to learn from you. And then maybe when, you know, kind of something changes, they, they themselves go into I, government. Um, and that's, that's something that you know much more well, about. Well, I mean, than, I, you know, me. I appreciate the, the implied compliment, but the truth is, you know, first it's, uh, it's all freakish chance. But um, I think the barriers are actually greater than they once were. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a, a sort of a semi-professionalization of, of that career path where, um, you know, that wasn't my first time in government. I'd been in the Defense Department much lower mm-hmm. down and, you know, various advisory boards. And so you kind of, you had things that kind of prepared you for what was, after all, not serving in the White House, but serving in one of uh, the, the departments of government. So I, I actually think the barriers have in some ways grown higher, although... I mean, it's right. The American system is more open than uh, just about any other I'm, I'm aware of. I wonder, as, I wonder as well whether, I mean, the period that we're talking about when Schlesinger and Kissinger and Brzezinski and these kind of people, there was a kind of a sense that there was a war of ideas yes. kind of going on there, with, within, there a, within a global context of kind of the Cold War. Uh, and then, you know, kind of post, post-war, there, there was a kind of a... There was a period of pragmatism around kind of politics and then kind of after 9-11 kind of ideas kind of came back. I think we're again, we're in a we're in an, an ideas driven moment in American politics. It's one of the things I, I very often get asked. What would Arthur Schlesinger make of? Uh, of uh, Donald Trump, the, the of President Trump. Okay, what would he make of Donald and, Trump? You know, I think that it's quite clear that on one level, you know, politically and and in terms of sensibility, he would have been appalled. Um, he also, uh, kind of historically, I think he would have seen this as the kind of thing that he was talking about in the age of Jackson, in the age of Roosevelt, a kind of a return of the kind of the business interests, kind of in kind of America. But there's, a, there's one other thing. I think that Arthur Schlesinger would have recognised that, to take the most extreme example, uh, although he's, he's fallen out of favour, no one would doubt that somebody like Steve Bannon sees politics as a war of ideas, that Steve Bannon thinks that ideas matter yeah. uh, in politics. And Arthur Schlesinger believed that too. And although they would have been really at opposite poles... I think there would have been a kind of a sense, right, 
you know, time to engage, that if this is a war of ideas, that's a fight that I'm prepared, willing and able to, to, to engage in. I mean, he, he was always an engaged um, liberal. Would his sense of what the other side was like have also changed between then, do you think, and now? Maybe, but then don't forget that, he, uh, and I'm not making a comparison uh, here, but don't forget he grew up in the 1930s. So, you know, the reason why he talked about sure. the vital centre as being important, why uh, non-communist, uh, the non-communist left needed to work with the non-fascist right, uh, and that essentially wherever you were on that spectrum, you were basically all on the same side. But for him, kind of growing up, extremism meant Hitler, it meant Mussolini, yeah. it meant Stalin and the, and the purges. So, you know, to some degree, his life had always been framed by the most, the, the most egregious extremes yeah. uh, in, in politics that you were ever able to think about. Well, and that is something also that was distinctive to that generation of intellectuals. They, they were... World War II was formative mm. for them in many ways. So, you know, you've mentioned already that um, the Age of Jackson and the Roosevelt books loom large, but graduate students in history would, of course, you know, they might, they might reference them, if only to say, but we now know mm. that thus and such. Um, but he, of course, didn't just write those history books and what were essentially memoirs. There, there are three books, The Imperial Presidency, The Disuniting of America, and The Vital Center, mm all of which are, I think, in a different category, wouldn't you say? And I, I wonder, how do you think those books stand up? And those are, the, those are the books where he's really addressing the nature of the American political system, not a particular... I mean, he does address particular figures, but they're larger... He's making larger judgments about American mm. politics. And I was wondering if you could speak to those. Which uh, of those is your favorite? Yeah. What, what parts do you think are still relevant? I think that particularly the first two that you mentioned, uh, the Vital Center and the Imperial, uh, imperial Presidency, um, I, I, think, I think they both stand up really well, actually. The, vi- the Vital Center, you know, as I said before, has this idea that you know you have to there has to be a vibrant center ground in politics which isn't he doesn't mean mod, you know a kind of moderate straight in the middle what he's talking about is the vibrancy of democracy itself um, and i think that uh, whether uh, we're kind of looking at on the world stage or the kind of the nature of political debate here in the united states i think there is a kind of a sense of fragility about democracy. You look at the uh, recent books by Patrick Deneen, for example, yeah. or uh, another book, How Democracies Die, that there's a, there's a, a concern, um, there's a, an interest again in the uh, fall of the Roman Republic, for example, people looking back to that example. So I think that Schlesinger's ideas there um, seem to me to be very relevant and uh, and the imperial presidency links into that in kind of in some ways because you know kind of part of his uh, kind of argument there is you know to what extent uh, having grown up as a worshipper almost of Roosevelt as an activist president to what extent is that now detrimental uh, for democracy and that's something uh, which he was writing in the co- in the context of Nixon. So it, it's actually, in some ways, the imperial presidency is almost uh, is almost the book uh, which he uh, where he gets that balance between the history and the politics almost perfectly. Did, did he end up as an optimist about the United States? Do you think towards the end of his life, or 
I mean, he, you know, I, I would certainly say early on that it's he's an it's an optimist's mm-hmm. view, largely because of FDR and uh, JFK. But in the longer haul, was he an optimist? I think. I mean, you're right. His his whole progressive worldview as he's growing up, which he inherits from his father, is a very positive one, both intellectually, but also just in terms of his own disposition. But I, I don't think that we can underestimate the personal and intellectual devastation of first the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and then of, of Robert F. Kennedy. That, you know, he talks about, you know, this decade of hate at the, at the end of the 1960s. Uh, and something dies inside, I think, after the, those two assassinations. And he does, he does become more pessimistic about... Uh, the United States and its politics. Ironically, one of the ways in which he rediscovers some of that earlier optimism is by revisiting it, that he writes a really lovely memoir, um, which kind of goes up to uh, 1949, it stops at 1949, where he kind of revisits his childhood and his kind of his wartime Hmm. experience and But it's interesting that he stops just at the moment that in his own life where he himself becomes controversial. So there's almost a kind of a a sense of wanting to kind of go back to the, he calls it innocent beginnings. Uh, And there is kind of some, uh, a kind of a sense of before the fall, if you like, about uh, that moment that comes at the end of his life. And of course, he he really crystallized that feeling about Kennedy. I mean, where do we get that that feeling of Camelot and... I, mean, I grew up in Boston, so the mm. cult of Kennedy was very much alive and well, uh, even when I was growing up years after he after he was had been assassinated. Uh, did he know about the darker side of Kennedy's character? He came to did know, he care? He came to know about it, and it bothered him it, as much by the fact that he didn't really know about it. I, you know, this is one of those judgment calls that you have to make as a historian when you look at the files. Um, uh, it's worth saying that that he kept everything. Uh, you can go to the New York Public Library and look through the 500-plus boxes of his papers going right back uh, to his childhood. Um, he doesn't throw bits of paper away. He's meticulous about keeping correspondence. I genuinely, I genuinely believe that... Uh, I think that Kennedy compartmentalised kind of different bits of his life and that... You know, the Dave Powers part of his life um, was completely separate to the Schlesinger kind of intellectual and the intellectual side of his life. So I think that, uh, I don't think he knew, but as he comes to know, he finds it increasingly difficult to come out and to be critical of Kennedy. He did ask about um, the illness before Kennedy becomes president. He asks him outright, whether he has Addison's disease. Uh, and Kennedy says no, he lies, he lies to him. Really? So, you know, there's a sense in which he's not uh, unaware of uh, kind of various questions. But, you know, he, he does things like in front of Jackie Kennedy, kind of ask about, you know, well, you know, why, why is it that, you know, the Kennedys have such good marriages and the Roosevelts have bad. I don't think that's the kind of question that you would ask in front of Jackie Kennedy if you knew what we subsequently know about the president and his um, infidelities. Yeah. How, how do we know how Kennedy viewed him? Was I think, he just sort of a... Um, 
an ornament in this court that uh, that he had? Or it's it's one of the things that we forget about John F. Kennedy is that he genuinely thought of himself as an intellectual. You know, it, there's. Uh, you, I think you could make the argument that you know maybe if uh, uh, if Joe Junior hadn't died during the war and then John F. Kennedy became the the kind of the focus. I mean, who knows? Uh, Kennedy thought of himself as a writer, uh, and that's what appealed to him. But he genuinely loved talking about history. He kind of read widely. Uh, they got to know each other in the 1950s when uh, Kennedy and, and Ted Sorensen were writing kind of profile, profiles in Courage uh, and or so Ted on. Sorensen and JFK were writing. When Sorensen and, and, and JFK were, were kind of writing. But, you know, Kennedy was genuinely interested yeah. in the project. I mean, Sorensen is one of the great wordsmiths, I mean, arguably the greatest speechwriter yeah. in kind of American politics. Um, but, you know, there was a, Kennedy was genuinely interested in these things. And he just liked, at the end of the day, he would quite often have Schlesinger into the Oval Office. They would kind of pour a drink. And as J.K. Galbraith says, you know, Kennedy loved hearing Chester, uh, Schlesinger say, well, you know, this is, this is a bit like it was in the day of Chester Arthur. And they'd kind of talk about this. And uh, when the ranking of presidents uh, done by Schlesinger's father came out, mm. they talked about it for ages. Kennedy saying, well, you know, why is he here? And he would kind of, he was fascinated in the different, different things. So he genuinely loved history, loved reading um, was to some degree a politician, yeah. a, pol- a politician intellectual. Yeah. That actually was the first question. Um, but so there, Apologies uh, to the person. There's some sort of psychic uh, communication <laughs> going on there. So um, first question, then I'll, or a second question I'll ask uh, from the audience is, was Schlesinger's theory about the cycles of the American presidential elections flawed? Where is the continuity of reform with Clinton, Bush, and Obama, Trump? So I think that, you know, he would probably argue, as I, as I kind of said before, that, you know, actually we have come back to one of the part of the cycle that, that he identified. So that, first, maybe actually, if you could just, for those of us who are not really familiar with yeah, his... Yeah, so, I mean, this is, this is, this is something that uh, his, uh, his father actually developed, and then he wrote, he wrote a book about uh, himself, that he kind of basically argued that, that you would have a kind of a period of progressive reform, uh, kind of which would then kind of work its way through, and then the kind of the cycle would kind of come back to a conservative period, and in particular, in this kind of conservative in this conservative period, you would very often see the emergence uh, of kind of business interests and, and kind of so on. But then, uh, in this kind of liberal vision, the kind of the the essential corruption of that moment. Would there would build up uh, a need for reform, um, and so then you would kind of you would cycle back. And he, he actually in the book he has all kinds of diagrams where he kind of shows how this is uh, kind of done, uh, kind of statistically uh, uh, and so on. So, do, do you believe but, but it? Well, I think that I mean we don't we sometimes call it something else, the pendulum. That you know, kind of politics tends to swing over to one extreme and it kind of reaches here and then the pendulum kind of starts to to swing back. So I think that, you know, this is not something which is unrecognized among either uh, historians or political commentators. Uh, Second question is sort of like that. Here's an interesting one. 
Schlesinger was unhappy with Noam Chomsky's writings. Would you comment on this? Well, uh, kind of Chomsky obviously comes from a very different kind of perspective to Arthur Schlesinger. And Chomsky is very critical of the kind of liberalism that kind of Schlesinger kind of um, personifies. But he's also, of course, very critical of Vietnam. Uh, Although Chomsky is quite interesting um, because Chomsky is one of the few people that says, you know, actually America did not lose the Vietnam War. Uh, He's critical of what America wanted to achieve in that war. But he says, if you look back to the Eisenhower administration and what their objectives were for the war uh, and kind of stopping their, I suppose, what we sometimes describe as the domino effect and so on, actually America did exactly what Eisenhower kind of wanted. But it's kind of part of that broader critique which comes through in the, from the late 1960s onwards, from, the, for example, the New Left, uh, which kind of sees kind of Schlesinger as a kind of proto uh, kind of stooge for the establishment and not being kind of genuinely radical in his, in his reform. Do, do, do you think... Um the kind of liberalism that Schlesinger represented, is that still flourishing and alive, or does he look like more of a product of a particular time and place? I think that when we look back now, you can see that Schlesinger is really the last in the line of that kind of progressive liberalism. I mean, that's true historically, that it kind of comes through kind of people people like... Um, Um, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner and and the Frontier Thesis and Schlesinger's own father and kind of so on. Um, uh, That he's he's at the end of that, but also politically, that, you know, through, first of all, Stevenson and then the New Frontier, that kind of idea is almost... um, Andrew Basevich has written about this, that it is almost a, a kind of a mindset. It's a a style as much as it is a political philosophy. Um, The friendship with someone like Henry Kissinger is part of that style, that there's a kind of an intellectual world, a sensibility that kind of brings a certain worldview with it that's cosmopolitan um, in its outlook, um, Catholic in its tastes. And I think that certainly the political moment that we're in now, uh, it seems that 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 territory, staking out that territory is kind of very narrow today, I think. And he was, uh, he was a Cold Warrior, I think you can say. I mean, he, there wasn't much ambiguity, I think, in his view of the Soviet Union. Was no, he was, he, was definitely a, he was definitely a Cold War liberal and kind of stakes that out in a way that, I mean, coming back to your question about the new left, that that's one of the things that, that they're very critical of him mm. about. That, again, and this sense that maybe he was a stooge of the... Uh, of the of the establishment. Um, interesting one. In the age of alternative facts and fake news, what source do you find to provide an objective narrative of the modern American presidency? Well, oh. I am a very, in this sense, a very old-fashioned empirical historian that. You know, I think that the thing that links me to somebody like Arthur Schlesinger is that when the history of the next American president uh, is is written, I think that you dig into the archives and, you know, you 
even even though we're in a new digital age and it gets it's going to be more complicated to kind of sift through information i can absolutely guarantee that there will be things that will emerge from documents from sources from memoirs that will allow that historical record uh, to be written the the alternative facts and all of these kind of things they're part of the political discourse but i think you will find that they will get winnowed out in the uh, the kind of the historical process is good history that, may, that probably does make me an optimist yeah i think i would say so um is good history more than good storytelling uh, good history can doesn't necessarily have to be good storytelling. Sometimes good history it can be very analytical uh, without any kind of story at all. It's one of the wonderful things about our profession uh, that you can have different kinds of history written in different kinds of way. But I would invert the question to some degree and say that good storytelling can be good history. So that I think that there was a, there was a time when narrative history uh, seemed to have gone out of fashion. Um, but I think there's a recognition now that actually sometimes narrative history can deliver really very profound uh, insights, that whether that's through a, bi- um, a biographical focus uh, or whether it's through the kind of the telling of a... Uh, telling of a, of a particular story. And also, the fact of the matter is that narrative history is one of the, the best ways to engage the broadest possible reading public uh, for a book. And that, uh, I think, is a good thing. I, we were talking about this before, that I think that, that historians, those working inside the academy, uh, I think that we have a duty to uh, kind of uh, communicate the things that we've studied, <coughs> the things that we've learned to the broadest possible uh, audience. Because if you believe that history is important, comes to the root of your, the previous question, if you believe that history is important, then you want as many people to be thinking historically uh, as possible because it provides context for us to think about the kind of decisions um, that are in front of us today. Yeah, and he was a rattling good storyteller, wasn't he? He was a he was a wonderful storyteller. Even even his most vociferous critic uh, would not argue uh, that Schlesinger was anything other than a wonderful uh, storyteller. Schlesinger said that quote It would take a long time to forgive Stevenson's cheery, smiling demeanor after the JFK assassination. Was that fair? Or was it perhaps an overreaction fueled by his emotional involvements with both Stevenson and Kennedy and the hope he had cherished that they would appreciate each other more? I think that there's a, there's a very strong element of truth that, that this has been overplayed. Um, but the simple fact of the matter is that, number one, Schlesinger was, as I said before, in deep grief after the death, the death of John F. Kennedy And it is also true that Adlai Stevenson was not gracious in the way in which he responded uh, to the death of the president. And that he had form for that kind of thing. For example, uh, there's a very painful exchange in Schlesinger's journals um, where he talks about Kennedy coming up to him after the death of their um, few weeks old baby, Patrick, and him, uh, Kennedy, saying to Schlesinger, you know, listen, would you 
please ask Adelaide to write to Jackie. He's the only person who hasn't. So I think that there was a... Adelaide Stevenson has this kind of... um, We sometimes remember him as a, a kind of a genial intellectual... He had... Like, you know, perhaps you have to have as a, as a politician. He had a cold, ruthless side. Um, he, to some degree, despite all his protestations, believed that he should have been president and in his heart of hearts believed that he should have just been called forward to have his third go in 1960. And so I think there was, a, there, there was something personal. And, of course, Kennedy understood that, humiliated him, um, over during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He thought that he'd, he was going to be Secretary of State. He, he gets the UN ambassadorship. So there's a, there's a, there's a long history. history there. There's a long history yeah. but kind of between the two. Uh, moving to uh, the present day, are there any contemporary historians writing or teaching today to whom you would compare Schlesinger? Any historians writing today who I would compare to uh, Schlesinger. Well, I suppose um, I've already mentioned him kind of once, but Neil Ferguson would be a good example of somebody. I mean, he's he's written uh, a biography, the first half of a biography uh, of Henry Kissinger, which itself is a kind of very controversial yep. subject. He engages uh, with uh, kind of subjects like, uh, for example, um, the uh, his most recent book, The Tower and the Square, or The Square and the Tower, I can't remember which way around it is, uh, is kind of looking at these kind of bigger currents. Um, and then you have uh, maybe historians who are perhaps not as uh, political as Neil Ferguson in, kind of in the way they engage in the public sphere, like Ordana Westad, who's written a wonderful book about the Cold War, Stephen Kotkin, a wonderful biography of Stalin, um, and then uh, one of the best books that I read last year uh, is uh, kind of a narrative historian uh, who writes very much like Schlesinger, um, very distinguished uh, American historian called Gordon Wood, uh, who wrote a wonderful book about Jefferson uh, and Adams and their kind of rivalry. I mean, the, just the power and elegance of the prose. So, you know, that's the... It's the great thing about our profession that each generation succeeds the next. Uh, they, and, and each generation produces some really wonderful historians and writers. So here's a, it's a related question. <clears throat> did Republicans ever seek to have their own Schlesinger, or did any future historian try to become a latter-day Schlesinger? That is, I think those are two separate questions. First, yeah. is there a Republican equivalent... But as you think about historians you've known, do you know any who've modeled themselves on Schlesinger? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's not so much a Republican Schlesinger per se, but there have been other historians um, who have, uh, in their different ways, tried to do what Schlesinger did, um, including about Republicans. So, uh, for example, um, Edmund Morris is a, a good example of somebody who wrote a quite controversial um, biography of Ronald Reagan was given was given access uh, in the um, into the White House yeah. kind of was able to uh, kind of shadow uh, the kind of the president um, other people have done it for presidents as well um, um, Taylor Branch did it for Bill Clinton uh, for example but it's difficult to think of a, a Republican 
uh, Arthur Schlesinger, although I'm sure there, there, must, there must be one and maybe somebody in the audience can, uh, can suggest one. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.